our Father, indeed, it's a, it's a wonderful reminder to, to rethink once again that this is our Father's world, that He is the one who has created the heavens and the earth, that He is the one that has flung the stars into existence, and that we are created, have been created, at His pleasure. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give us a sense of safety, a sense of security in knowing that indeed, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. That no, no nation, no government, no, no abortion pill, nothing has kicked you off your throne and that for some reason you are permitting things that we find so incongruent. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of all this, we might find ourselves prompted and determined to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. Now, Lord, accept our gifts. Might they be used for one reason, and that is to magnify you to this culture, culture so that they can see you better than they could ever before. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 27, I'd like to read to the end of that chapter. Judges chapter 1, at verse 27, as we continue our study of the book of Judges. <clears throat> verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibelim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land, and it came to pass when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab, Akzib, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out, drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. And nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. For they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, and in Aijalon, and in Shilbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Arachbim, from Selah, and upward. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God, you can count on it, enduring forever. Spent most of my time this week just learning how to pronounce those names. Uh, didn't do too well with some of them, did I? But, uh, you know, they, they used to tell us in seminary, 
that if you cannot, uh, if you don't know how it's pronounced, just say it loud. And that will uh, make people think that you know how they're pronounced. But, but how they're pronounced is really not, not the point here, is it? I told you when I introduced our uh, study of the book of Judges that it was a neglected book, that uh, it had been a long time since anybody had turned back to the book of Judges to find out uh, a whole lot besides the stories of Gideon and Samson. And so what we were going to do is, is, is work through it systematically. And I, I told you then that I thought, just speculatively, speculatively on my part, that one of the reasons that the book was neglected is because it was so explicit about human failure, about human frailty. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what you get in our text this morning is a, <clears throat> a pretty classic example of that very thing. You know, nobody likes it when their failures are highlighted, are uh, underscored, are made public so that everybody can see them. In fact, we try to hide those things as best we know how. In fact, we go to some pretty unbelievable extremes to make sure that our failures are not known. Um, but now victories, that's a different thing. We love for people to know about our victories. We know, love for them to know uh, when we got promoted and... and uh, uh, what kinds of things that we've succeeded in doing. We love to share the victories. But one of the reasons, and I've said this in the past on a couple of occasions, but one of the reasons that I believe this book so, that is this book called the Bible, one of the reasons that I'm so convinced that it is indeed the Word of God is it's uh, unlike other books uh, in a lot of ways, but one of the ways that it's so uh, obviously unlike other books is that it not only gives you the victories, it gives you the defeats. It doesn't tell you just the, the bright side, it also tells you the dark side. And I would, I, this is just a guess on my part, but I would suggest to you that when it comes to length, the Bible spends more length describing the dark side than it does the bright side of its heroes, of its men. Uh, that it lauds. For instance, take this story of David and read it from front to back one day and, and see uh, how much time is spent dwelling on how horribly David failed. Well, this text this morning uh, is one text where if you look closely enough and concentrate on it just a bit, you can see, and, and if you can't see it, you can certainly sense it, that there is a design in the author's mind as he wrote this. Um, there is something he's trying to communicate, and it pretty much, I, I think, if you haven't seen it, and when I point to it, I think you'll agree. <clears throat> That's exactly what's going on. The author here, and by the way, we're not really sure who the author of the book of Judges is. The best guess is Samuel, but we're not sure of that. But the author portrays in this passage an increasing powerlessness on the part of Israel and this progressive deterioration of their situation. What you have here in these few verses, these nine, ten verses or so, is a picture of a downward spiral. Now everybody knows what one of those are. It's a picture of a nation on some skids heading in the wrong direction. You'll notice that 
in the text, each of the tribes that are mentioned, and there are seven tribes, there weren't but 12, but seven of the tribes, each tribe fared a little bit worse than the one who came before it. And, and again, if you listen carefully, you can hear, you can almost hear in this brief collection of paragraphs, you can almost hear a, uh, an emergency siren way off in the distance beginning to wail, beginning to sound an alarm. And eventually, not in this text this morning, but eventually we'll see later in our study of the book of Judges, eventually you'll see that the Canaanites, they uh, pretty much take over. They're the one that dominated Israel on Israel's turf. And the author keeps pounding this message again and again and again, seven times in, this, in these ten verses. The author says, and such and such a tribe did not drive out. And such and such a tribe did not drive out. Dan did not drive out. Asher did not drive out. Manasseh did not drive out. And um, with that, I think you m must say that he's making a prediction. Israel's in trouble. And this is the very beginnings of the trouble. This is not a case, I know those names were hard for me to pronounce, and I know they probably held very little interest for you. I have been to a couple of these places. Beit Shan is the largest archaeological dig in Israel today. Walked through the streets of Beit Shan. But this is not a case of geographical tedium. But it is a case. It's an accusatory case. It's a case that an author is making against guilty people. Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. All of them fail. All of them fail to overcome the enemy and uh, had allowed this enemy to continue living <clears throat> in their tribal territories, the land that God had given to them. And in one case, in verse 34, we find that the enemy uh, drove the tribe of Dan up into the mountains and wouldn't allow them to come down to the plains. And what you hear in this passage is that the Canaanites um, remained in the land. And on some occasions... When uh, Israel was strong, she forced them into slave labor. But still in all, the Canaanites remained squarely entrenched in land that God had given to Israel. Another little observation that I, I want you to see, I'm, I may be making a little bit more out of this than I should, but I want you to notice the difference in verses 30 and 32. Let me read you verse 32 again, verse 30 first. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites dwelt among them and they were put under tribute. Now look at that text and now compare it with verse 32. 
So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Do you see the difference in those two texts? One says the Canaanites had to dwell in the land of so-and-so. But in verse 32, we find it's the Asherites, I think it is, uh, the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. The, the situation has inverted. It's not, it's not bad enough that the Canaanites are still there. In the case of an Asher, they uh, look like they're in the position of giving Asher permission to live in land that God had given to them. So while most of the tribes of Israel were able to at least occupy a bit of their allotted territories, the tribe of Asher, <laughs> those poor guys, apparently they failed completely. And thus, and thus the, we're told that the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. Thanks a lot, Canaanites. Appreciate y'all letting us live here. I am simply saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the author is sounding, he is sounding a note of impending spiritual disaster. Perhaps faintly, but he is sounding a note. And so what I want to do this morning is to try and take this text, this, this embryonic disaster that is beginning to swell, and I'd like to take it and put it under some kind of magnifying glass, some kind of microscope, and see if we can't learn some things about it that would help us avoid a, a similar disaster. So there's three things that I want you to see that I think are in this text as you look at it a little bit more closely. The first thing that I saw when I magnified it a bit was this. The priests, who of course lived among the Israelites, were assigned certain duties. And one of their duties was to um, be, be a caretaker of the Torah. They all had um, copies of the five books of Moses. And the priests were commanded uh, to read the Torah publicly to the, to the nation of Israel every sabbatical year during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there is not one time recorded in the Old Testament that that ever happened. The command was for the priests to read this Torah once every seven years of the whole nation. It is never recorded that that ever happened. Now, had they been faithful, that is, had the priests been faithful to do what they were charged with doing, they would have had to read passages like this. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you'd like to look. Um, five verses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. <clears throat> but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars. 
and cut down their wooden images and burn their, their carved images with fire. Now, had the priests been faithful to their responsibility at least once every seven years, Israel would have been reminded of what God intended for this promised land. So what I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that the first wrong turn that is made by Israel was a neglect of the Word of God. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, it hasn't gotten better. Let, let me read you this out of 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You know, when you look at this text under a magnifying glass, the first thing I saw was, how did they ever come to the place where they were willing to accept this kind of arrangement? Well, possibly it was because they neglected hearing the repetition of God. And by the way, we're going to look at one more before we're finished. But the repetition of the, the, the command of God is, this is the way I want things done. And so the first problem was their neglect of God's word. And, and I'm, I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, so many Christians today are making that same mistake, trying to live off fast food spiritually, you know, imbibing things that require no chewing. Perhaps it's by choice. Perhaps it's by neglect. But either way, ladies and gentlemen, eventually... It's going to overtake you. Those precepts of God, those mandates that are, that, are, that are supposed to steer us. Once you neglect that, oh, you're going to make a lot of wrong turns. That's the first part of this impending disaster. The second little infection that I saw in this text had to do with verse 28. Let me read that to you again. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, or that is, they became forced laborers, but did not completely drive them out. Um, the, um, the, the nation of Israel decide that uh, certain things are maybe a little bit too difficult for them. So instead of full-blown obedience to what God has told them to do, um, <clears throat> they decide that they've got another plan. Uh, they will substitute their plan for the plan that is clearly outlined in the Scriptures. And um, it will be, we're not going to drive them out, we'll just put them into forced labor. Instead of outright obedience, let's come up with a plan that, that looks at least somewhat like God demanded us or commanded us to do. Um, and so in the name, I guess, of obedience or described as being a wise approach to their situation, they decide to ignore the clear commands of God. We're going to let them live. 
it's it's kind of like a surgeon who decides to remove only part of the tumor because for some bizarre reason he has a he, 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 has, he wants to accommodate... I mean, even a tumor has a right to live. Gang, um, you, you may not get my point. Let me try to make it a, a bit clearer. Four times in this text, verse 28, verse 30, verse 33, and verse 35, four times in this text we are told that the enemies, the Canaanites, were forced into labor. That means something. That means that at some point, some portions of Israel were strong enough to subdue their enemies. But instead of rooting out those enemies entirely, as she was clearly told to do, and able to do, she put them into forced labor. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call a clear violation of a command of God. But it looks smart. And, and it looks like it's working out real well. And so what you have is Israel being dominant in certain instances in this passage. Dominant, but not obedient. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the principle, I think, in this point is this. It's possible for the Christian's life to display the marks of success and all the while be in the midst of utter disobedience. Things are going good. We got the enemy. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, they had the power, they had the ability, they knew the command, or at least were supposed to. And they decided, let's not do it that way. Let's do it another way. You know, that's, in, that's inevitably what's going to happen when the word is neglected, ladies and gentlemen. Inevitably. We're going to come up with our own plan. I don't like his. His is somewhat, uh, you know, demanding, and I'm going to go on to mine. Let me give you one other thing, and, and so we can draw this to a close. One other thing that, that you can see, I think, as you look at this passage more closely, is a full-blown tumor. Gang, um, do you know the motivation to drive out the Canaanites? Do you know what God's motivation was for having them drive out all those enemies? Uh, was it military, you think? Or maybe geopolitical? It was neither of those things, ladies and gentlemen. The reason that God wanted them to drive, the motive behind it is clearly outlined. And it was a spiritual motivation. And I'd, like for, I'd love for you to see this. So if you can find Numbers 33 real quick. And I can find my glasses real quick. If you can find Numbers 33, it's not very far back. I want you to read with me. I mean, just read, follow as I read five verses, beginning at verse 51. I'm in Numbers 33, verse 51. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. 
You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your uh, families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance, that everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, that'll be perfectly fine. You can just put them into forced labor. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, don't let that bug you. Because the fact that you're halfway obedient is something that really pleases me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking at your Bibles, you know I made those last two up. Let me read it to you as it's stated. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So what is God's motivation? <laughs> to exterminate all the enemies? Because he's mean? Because he's a bloodthirsty God? No, ladies and gentlemen. His motive is love for his people. Because if you let them remain, they're going to be irritants to your eyes and thorns in your flesh forever. So Israel permitted conditions which, at least immediately, brought on no immediate disaster. But then they began to live with the Canaanites and eventually, once you start living with the Canaanites, you start worshiping with the Canaanites. And um, it seemed like a rather small thing at, at the time. But by the time we get to Elijah, you know the story on Mount Carmel where he fights all the prophets? You know what you got now? I forget the numbers. I'll make them up. You have 400 prophets of Baal and you got one prophet of Jehovah. And all the grandkids grew up and Jehovah was nothing but an also-ran. Yeah, 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 there's, there's a lot of uh, gods out there and uh, Jehovah, you know, used to be pretty, pretty, pretty big around here, but he's not anymore. He's kind of, a, you know, one of those others who participated because Baal's the god now. Gang, um, just to give you just a little flavor, the main deity, of course, in Canaan was Baal, who was the god of rainfall and the god of fertility, and he had a wife. His spouse was Ashtaroth. And uh, if he wanted to have a fruitful orchard and a good harvest and vineyards that were rich, 
and, and, and you wanted your flocks and your herds to increase, what you did is that you went over to the Baal temple and you conducted your worship with a temple prostitute. So what you have is a combination of idolatry and immorality and agricultural nonsense. And you know, <laughs> it was pretty hard for the head of the families to resist that kind of worship. In fact, I'll, I'll even, I certainly am not trying to pick on anybody, but if you, if you set down a good old Southern Baptist church right next door to a uh, first church of Baal, I bet you I know the one that will get the biggest, at least among men. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that what the principle that you find at least illustrated here is the principle that is found in the New Testament. The principle is this. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Why doesn't God want those enemy, us to hang around those enemies of his? Because he's mean? Because we're supposed to be a group of elitists? No, no, ladies and gentlemen. It has to do with the nature of sin. It has to do with the nature of our souls. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, sin is attractive. And if it weren't attractive, it wouldn't be sin. But if you allow it to hang around, it will eventually dominate. Obedience is what God asks for and demands. And anything short of that is going to do you in. It's going to be like a, like an eyelash in your eye that you just dead and gum it. You can't get the sucker out of there for nothing. It's going to be like a thorn in your flesh. And then the final part of the promise is, then I will do to you what I had intended to do to your enemies. Gang, there's a siren that wails in this text. And the lessons for you and I are pretty clear. Start neglecting the word and you'll come up with plans of your own that will lead to partial obedience. And then you will forget that the reason that God wanted you to get rid of all that sin was because he loved you. I think that's the lesson in this portion of God's Word. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that your people will find benefit in what has been said. I pray that they will find and discover application that they might make even before the day is out. That the uh, 
the kind of toleration of sin in our lives has gone way too far and that we must determine that we will never neglect your word and where we find it commanding us we will walk Father, for those who have come here today who are not uh, related to our Savior by faith, I pray that you will cause them to see that there is nothing more beautiful than our Savior and that this gospel that we proclaim and preach is far better than they ever thought. Now, Father, hear our voices. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.